uh, Genesis chapter 26. I'd ask if you could please stand with me. Is it, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, there was a, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall show you, tell, shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped at the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, when the Philist, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, so they quarreled over that also, and he called its name Sitna. And they moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we should become fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a swarm pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have, not done, have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, when, when, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is called Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith the daughter of Beeri the Hittite to be his wife. And Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of our Lord.
You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word together this morning, we see things here that we've seen before. We see the way that, that Isaac follows in the footsteps of his father Abraham. But Father, more than that, we see the way that you are faithful to Isaac in your grace, the same way that you were faithful to his father Abraham. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as your people to see your faithfulness to us. Lord, you help us to see that, that you are blessing us and Lord, that you are with us because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In a speech to the British Parliament in 1948, Winston Churchill famously declared, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. He was actually repeating and paraphrasing a quote from Spanish philosopher George Santillana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Satirical novelist Kurt Vonnegut said many years later, I've got news for you, Mr. Santiana. We're doomed to repeat the past no matter what. That's what it is to be alive. Well, Churchill was agnostic. Santayana and Vonnegut were both atheists, but they each had some insight into human nature. On the one hand, Churchill and Santayana were right. We must learn from the past. However, Vonnegut was also right. We tend to repeat the past over and over and over again. History often repeats itself both individually and corporately. That being said, because of their, their atheism or agnosticism, these men showed a distinct lack of insight into the God of the Bible and what he can do. None of these men had any hope of ever truly learning from the past, from theirs or that of others. Because they did not have the power of God at work in their lives. This morning, as we continue the Toledot of Isaac, we're going to see Isaac failing to learn from the past. We're going to see him following in his father's footsteps, experiencing similar challenges that Abraham did, and behaving in a similarly sinful way. That being said, at other times, we'll see Isaac responding in a similarly obedient way, a worshipful way. Now, the similarity of, of chapter 26 with chapters 12 and 20 lead the majority of critical scholars to conclude that this passage, the chapter 26, is simply the repetition of events in Abraham's life, that, that when it was put together, all they did was, was change a couple of names, but all they're doing is just talking about what happened to Abraham again. Well, really, that, that shouldn't surprise us. Their response should not surprise us. Because many, if not most, critical scholars are like Winston Churchill, George Santayana, and Kurt Vonnegut, either atheistic or at least agnostic. They refuse to learn from the past. They, they deny the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God. So again, they're claiming that Genesis 26 is merely a duplication of Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Their, their faulty presuppositions blind them to the redemptive historical point of this passage. It blinds them from, to, from seeing what God is doing here. This incident with Isaac and the Philistines really forms an interlude from the, the conflict between Jacob and Esau that we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 25. And it's going to continue again in, in chapter 20, 27 and then on through the whole Toledot of Ishmael. Abraham is mentioned eight times in this chapter. There, there's both uh, direct parallels. There's direct parallels between Isaac and Abraham. They're, again, they're both positive and they're negative, but they're numerous. Like his father, we see Isaac interacting with Abimelech. Like his father, we see Isaac digging wells, including at Beersheba. Like his father, 
Isaac's relationship between, uh, with Abimelech vacillates between hostility and friendship. Like his father, Isaac receives the divine promises. Like his father, Isaac responds with obedience and worship in building an altar. Like his father, Isaac's success comes from God's grace, not human merit. So as we see that the repetition of these events throughout chapter 26, we're really seeing God's faithfulness going to the next generation. The same blessing that was given to Abraham is now being given to Isaac. The most important parallel in chapter 26 is the Lord's promise, I am with you. See this in verse 3 and again in 24 and 28. So the point of this passage is to reveal that the Lord's blessing given to Abraham is now being passed on to Isaac as it will later be passed on to Jacob. The Lord is being faithful to the covenant that he had established with Abraham as his faithfulness now extends to the next generation. The Lord is blessing Abraham's son Isaac as he declared that he would do in Genesis 25:11. This is the, the birthright that Esau forsook in the last chapter. So in chapter 26, there are three main scenes, and each one provides a strong link between Abraham and Isaac. First of all, we see in verses 1 to 11, Isaac versus Abimelech over Rebekah. In the second scene, in verses 12 to 25, we see Isaac versus the Philistines over the wells. And then finally, in verses 26 to 35, we see Isaac with Abimelech in covenant. As is true for Abraham, the Lord is blessing Isaac. And this blessing is, is assured no matter what threats come against it. Whether they're, they're external threats or internal threats, no threat can overcome the Lord's blessing in the lives of his people. So first of all, verses 1 to 11, Isaac versus Abimelech over Rebekah. We don't have to wait very long for the first threat to come. Verse 1 begins, there was a famine in the land. And in order for Isaac to survive, he headed south. Presumably, he was, he was headed towards Egypt. And the route, the route to Egypt goes through Gerar. And he appears before Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, here in the, on the southern border of Canaan, the, south, the, south, the southwestern border of, of the promised land. Again, these, these details are, are familiar to you, right? Like the, the famine, it, it reminds us of the famine that, that led uh, Abraham down to Egypt. And Abimelech, we, we remember Abimelech from chapter 20. Abimelech was the, the chief antagonist um, in, in chapter 20, even though it was, was really um, Abraham who, who behaved antagonistically towards Abimelech and towards his people. But this, that was a, was a different famine, and, and that was a different Abimelech. We're, we're told directly here that this was a different famine. That, that event took place, uh, the, the events of, of chapter 20 took place 75 years before what we see here in, in chapter 26. These are details that, that many critical scholars ignore or dismiss. In fact, there, there's actually another Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 and another one at the heading of, of Psalm 34 in the time of David a thousand years later. So either this is a different person or, or it would give new meaning to the words long live the king. Uh, so Abimelech was, was probably a title. It means my father is king. It was, he was probably like Pharaoh it was a, or Caesar. It meant, it meant king. He was the king of the Philistines. And it's here at Gerar where the Lord appeared to Isaac in a theophany. This, this is the first time that we're aware of in, in God's word that, that he speaks directly to Isaac, telling him not to go down to Egypt, but to dwell where the Lord tells him to sojourn in Gerar. So this, this place, this moment was the, the place of decision for Isaac. Is he going to obey the Lord and stay put? Or is he going to continue on to, to the, the fertile land of, the, of, the, of the, the Nile Delta in Egypt? For Isaac, obedience required faith. The, the, the promise, the, the promise of, of Abraham 
and down to Isaac appears to be endangered here by environmental circumstances. A, a famine could easily wipe out Isaac and his family. And the plains of Gerar were, were a desperately dry region, not the place that you would want to be in a famine. But Isaac is going to find out that God's blessing is not endangered by environmental circumstances. And brothers and sisters, your blessing is not endangered by environmental circumstances either. You don't need to fear global warming or nuclear winter. You don't need to fear fire or flood or famine. Now you may experience these things, but you need not fear them because God is sovereign over every environmental circumstance. The Lord here repeats the promise to Isaac that he'd given to Abraham in verses 3 and 4. I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We have seen all of those promises repeatedly given to Abraham in, in the, the Toledot of Terah the father of Abraham. We've seen them again and again and again, and here they're now being given to Isaac. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give you these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring. I will give your offspring these lands. I will bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring. Notice the repetition. The Lord says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The Lord will do it all. He says, stay here and I will bless you. Why? Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is not Isaac's obedience. This is Abraham's obedience. I Isaac can lay no claim on, on doing the right thing. This is the Lord speaking of Abraham. Abraham obeyed God's voice. Now children, do not misunderstand this. You are not saved. You do not earn favor with God because of your parents' obedience. You do not earn favor with God because of your parents' obedience. You're saved by faith. You're not saved by your obedience either. You're saved by faith. And again, it's not your parents' faith, it's your faith. Each one of you needs to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. You as an individual need to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that nobody can do for you. This is something you must do in the power that the Lord provides. John Calvin helpfully explains here. He says, Moses does not mean that Abraham's promise was the reason why the promise of God was confirmed and ratified to him, but we learn that what God freely bestows upon the faithful is sometimes beyond their desert ascribed to themselves. In other words, Calvin is saying that there are times that, that God declares that the things that we have, God declares that we have earned things that we have received by his grace. Remember Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is not saved by works any more than anyone is saved by works. But Abraham responded out of obedience because of God's work in him. God's grace. The terms here, my voice, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws are those that are repeatedly given in Deuteronomy. Years before the, the law was given, 400 and plus, 400 plus years before the law was, was given. And, and they're, they're here meant to portray Abraham as an obedient servant. Also, you can see highlighted here the fact that, that law and gospel are not, they're not really opposed to each other. They actually work together. We've been talking lately um, with some of the men about about the, the way the Apostle Paul speaks of, of the obedience of faith in Romans. It's in Romans 1, at the beginning of Romans, and it's, it's there at the end of Romans as well. The obedience of faith. So what James is about there, faith is not, is not contrasted with, with works. 
It is for salvation. But, but as we talk about many, many times, real faith works. We're, not saved, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. But what's happening here there is we're, we're seeing that there's no need for the Lord to make a new covenant with Isaac because the covenant with Abraham is still in effect. It's still there. So again, the stage is set. Will Isaac be like his father? Yes. But not primarily in the ways listed here. True, Isaac does obey God by settling in, in Gerar and not going down to Egypt. But Isaac is presented immediately as breaking the law. He breaks the law. In verses 7 to 11, we, we will see the promise endangered by, by both external threats, but the biggest danger is the internal threat, the threat of the internal threat that comes from Isaac himself. The Philistine men ask Isaac about his wife, and he lies, saying, She is my sister, for he feared to say his wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she's attractive. So here we see Isaac showing a distinct lack of faith. Out of fear, Isaac lied. Now, now remember, the Lord had just promised Isaac that he, would, that he would be with him, that he would bless him. And then right on the heels of that, we, we see Isaac now forgetting what God had promised him and acting in, in, in his flesh, acting out of fear. I wonder how often you do that. Acting in, in opposition to, to the truth that you know. Either, either acting out of fear or, or being paralyzed with fear. In, instead of walking in the, the truth and in the, in the faith, that, that you, the things that you know to be true by God's grace from his word. And Isaac here may have, have he might have surpassed the faith of his father when he prayed for his wife's barrenness, but his faith wavers. And he repeats his father's sin of lying to protect himself out of fear that the inhabitants of the land would kill him to get his wife. So Isaac is seen to be following in his father's footsteps. Abraham had done this in Egypt, and he did it again in Gerar. So we think about the example that, that Abraham provided for Isaac. The precedent that, that he had set in, in, in doing these things I'm thinking about the way that I'm, I'm an example to my children for good or for ill. Now, Isaac wasn't even born when Abraham deceived Pharaoh and Abimelech, but Abraham's behavior still influenced Isaac. Your children are watching you. And what you say often has what you do often has as much of an effect on, on your, your influence on others as, as what you say. What you say and what you do are both extremely important. So how does your behavior influence your children? What do your, your children learn about, about marriage from your example? What do your children learn about the church from your example? What do they learn about work or, or leisure or, or finances from your example? If we're honest, we, we have to admit that all of us at times are a bad example to our children and to others who are watching. And, and when you've done that, when you've actually been a bad example to somebody, when you've, you've denied the, the truths of God's word in your behavior in front of somebody else, that you need to confess that to God and ask forgiveness from him. And you also need to confess it to the individual and ask forgiveness from them. It's very important to bring that, that reconciliation, that restoration, and then show the fruit of repentance by the way that, that you now live before them. Show them the work that the gospel is doing in your life as you're, as you're gradually overcoming those patterns of sin in your life. Seek then to be a good example of, in those areas instead. You do not have to follow in the footsteps of your fathers or your mothers. You're not the victim of your upbringing. 
Children, you can, you can never say because, well, because my, my mother or father provided a bad example in this area, well, then I, am, I'm now ex- I have an excuse. I have a, I have a free pass to, to, do, to, to sin in those same ways. Now, you, you might have to fight more, more strongly against those things. They might become more of a temptation or a snare to you, but you have no excuse. And we as adults have no excuse for, for the ways that, that we were negatively influenced by, by our parents in our lives. So here in, in Gerar, even though Isaac and Rebekah were, were there for a long time, as we're told in the beginning of verse 8, nothing happened to her. She, she was never abducted or, or brought into a, fair, uh, into a harem, unlike, unlike Sarah, twice. So, so this external threat from, the, from the, the Philistine men was only an apparent threat. It wasn't real. I wonder how many of the things that, that you fear are figments of your imagination. Things, things that, that you concoct in your mind to be afraid of that you need not be afraid of. Things that, that never come to pass. So again, this external threat wasn't real. But the internal threat, Isaac's deception and Isaac's fear was real. This was the more dangerous threat to the promise. So here we see Isaac demonstrating a, a mixture of, of fear and we've just seen him exercise faith in, in staying in Gerar. And this, this really describes human beings, doesn't it? We, we live in the, in the already, not yet. Th- this mixture describes us as well. Like Paul says, I, I don't do what I want to do, but I do the things I don't want to do. And that, that's all Christians. That's all Christians. Now, unbelievers just do what they want to do. But the reality is that all of us are, are a mixture. So we understand that, that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace. The, the blessing doesn't come to Isaac because of his obedience. It comes to Isaac because of God's grace. It is by grace alone that the blessing comes to Isaac. And it's by grace alone that the blessing comes to you as well. Next we see Abimelech looking out of a window where he happened to see Isaac laughing with Rebekah. There's a play on words here that with Isaac's name. Isaac's name means laughter. The, the king saw Isaac engaging in behavior with Rebekah that was not befitting a, a brother's treatment of his sister. And so he confronted Isaac saying, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac replied, Because I thought lest I die because of her. And so Abimelech rebukes Isaac. He says, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Now I wonder, did Abimelech know about the about this, the situation with the, with the other Abimelech 75 years ago? Or, or is this simply an example of, of the law being written on a Gentile's heart, like in, in, in Romans 2.15? Well, Abimelech probably knew. But Isaac certainly knew what had happened before. He would have known about the previous incident, but instead of trusting in the Lord's divine protection, he trusted in his father's fleshly tactic. We do the same thing when, when we resort to fleshly means, to anger, fear, self-defense, excuses, and so on, when we get into a difficult situation. Abimelech here is seen with, as presenting more moral fiber than Isaac. In seeking to protect himself, Isaac put everyone else, including his wife, at risk. Isaac's weakness is, is being put on display so that, that we can see that, 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 that he was, was, a, was a, 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 a frail human being. There are no heroes in the Bible except God. There's one of the things about, about God's word that, that every single person in the Bible is shown as being flawed, being, being sinful. Every person in the Bible except God. God is the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story. 
So when we see Isaac's witness being put on display, this should provide on the one hand a challenge to us, but also it should provide an encouragement to us. It's, it's a challenge for us to grow beyond the sins of our past, to not keep doing the same things over and over again, to, to not follow in the footsteps, sinful footsteps of those who have come before us, to grow beyond the sins of, of previous generations. And it, but it's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement because of what happens next. But before we go there, I just want you to consider a couple of things. First again, you don't have to follow in the sins of your father or your mother. You're not the victim of your upbringing. But second, again, consider, consider the way that, the, the way that, that you're, not the, you're not the victim that you have to keep on doing the same things over and over again with your children either. This is God's grace. This is God's grace to us. that We're being given here this warning to help us to overcome these things. So in Isaac's sin, we're seeing the, the, the display of, uh, we're seeing the weakness of God's people being put on display. But he also, he, he endangered not only his wife and other people, but he actually endangered the blessing. But this is where the encouragement really begins to stand out. And when we see Abimelech's response in verse 11, so Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, Isaac was afraid that the people were going to kill him because of his wife. Now, the Lord is using this, this pagan king as a means of protection to protect Isaac, to protect Rebekah. Physical danger is no hindrance to God's blessing. Just like environmental circumstances, environmental threats are no hindrance to God's blessing, neither are physical danger from other people. Again, you might experience danger, you might experience physical pain at the hands of other people, but that is no threat to you. That is no threat to your blessing. We're told not to fear people who can destroy the body, but rather to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical danger is no threat, but, but also, and even more encouraging, at least to me, is that your sin is no hindrance to God's blessing. Your sin is no hindrance to God's blessing in your life. God's people are weak. They will fail repeatedly. But God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. He's going to use all things, even your sin, for your good and his glory. This is what our God does. So take heart, struggling Christian. God is for you in Christ. God will bless you in Christ. No matter what circumstances you're experiencing now, external, internal, think about your eternal circumstances. But there's even more encouragement of God's grace. Look at the next scene. Verses 12 to 25, we see Isaac versus the Philistines over the wells. I'll be moving more quickly here. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that same year a hundredfold. This is a, a remarkable increase. I'm not a farmer and I'm only really a very average to below average gardener. But this is an extraordinary yield. A hundredfold. Especially when you consider the fact that the chapter started with a famine. And so now God is multiplying these crops to Isaac because of, of what a great guy Isaac was. No! It's because of God's grace. Solely because of God's grace. H have you seen much here that would make you want to emulate Isaac's behavior? No, this is God's grace upon Isaac. Simply because God is a gracious God. Because God is faithful to Isaac as he was faithful to Abraham. Isaac has moved from famine to prosperity. And you can see why. Look at the end of verse 12. The Lord blessed him just as he had promised he would. Isaac became rich. He gained more and more and more until he became very wealthy. He became great until it became greater and greater until he was very great. God provides crops and flocks and herds and many servants. 
Now we understand that the blessings that we receive as Christians are, are not always material blessings. Quite often they are not material blessings. They are certainly spiritual blessings. But here this, these material blessings are, are meant to demonstrate God's faithfulness to Isaac in spiritual things. So again, we're seeing that environmental circumstances are no hindrance to God's blessing. Physical danger is no hindrance to God's blessing. Your sin is no hindrance to God's blessing. But next, we're going to see that neither is relational conflict a hindrance to God's blessing. The Philistines saw Isaac's prosperity and they envied him. They envied him. Now, people might be envious of your prosperity. They might see the things that you have and they, and they envy you. You might envy other people for the things that you see in their lives. Well, friends, that's a fracture of the 10th commandment. That's, that's covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife your, or his servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey that is, or his anything that is your neighbor's. Gen, uh, Exodus 20, 17. When you covet something that belongs to someone else, you, not only you're sinning against them, but you're sinning against God. Because what you're really saying, in effect, is that, is that it's like, like Eve in the garden. God, you're holding out on us. You, you're not giving me what's best. And that invariably leads to conflict. Well, Moses here in, in Genesis 26 interjects with a, a parenthetical, call, parenthetical comment in verse 15 that the Philistines had stopped up Abraham's wells. This is an, another clear link between Abraham and Isaac from the events of chapter 20. Abraham had experienced very similar conflict with the Philistines over the same wells 75 years prior. So I guess the Philistines had figured out that, that since Abraham was dead, they could break the covenant and, and they gave him access to the water. Either they, they figured it was that or they just didn't care. So next we see Abimelech saying to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Now there's one sense that there's an acknowledgement of what God was doing in Isaac's life, but there was a, there's a, a disconnect. There, it, it doesn't make sense that he would say, well, you're mightier than we, so get out of here. It's not fair. Isaac has rights to this water. Abraham had made a covenant with the earlier Abimelech that gave him rights to this water. But what does Isaac do? He doesn't argue. He simply moves on. Friends, aim to live in peace with your neighbors. I shudder to think about the bad neighbor that I was as an unbeliever, whether it was, was loud parties or, or shooting at bottles with, with BB guns in the backyard or, or, or whatever. I was not a very good neighbor. There's even times as a, as a Christian where I've, I've not been a good neighbor. I remember one neighbor whose, whose dog came out to attack my dog and I, I, got, I got angry. And, and I've, I tried to, to, um, to, to make that up, but there was, there was difficult ground that, that had to be remade. Be a good neighbor. But Isaac doesn't argue. He doesn't fight. He simply goes to the Valley of Gerar and settles there. He reclaims more of his father's wells and, and gives them the same names as his father gave them. He's establishing his rightful ownership. Isaac's men found new springs, but again, the Philistine herdsmen quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen. Laying claim on the water, again and again this happened. One well is called Esek, which, which means contention. He called the next one Sitna, which means enmity. There was ongoing hostility against Isaac from the Philistines. Remember, this is a desert. We talked about this from Genesis 20. Water means life. Water, water was vitally important and hard to find. Even the fact that Isaac's men were, were finding all this water in the wilderness, they kept on finding all these wells this was a sign of God's blessing. Remember, the, the Philistines who lived there, this was their land, they hadn't found the water, but God had led Isaac and his men to this water. It's a sign of God's blessing. So when there was, there was contention, Isaac didn't fight. He simply moved on. In verse 22, Isaac found another well, but this time the Philistines didn't fight over it. So Isaac named the well Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. He's acknowledging here God's sovereignty in, in letting there be peace between him and these Philistines. Friends, relational conflict is not a hindrance to God's blessing. There's always going to be conflict between believers and unbelievers. 
This is the continuation of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the, the seed of blessing and the seed of rejection and the seed of rejection. By God's grace, by God's grace, fight against relational conflict with the strength that God provides. You fight against relational conflict not by fighting for what you think you deserve, but by remembering what you really deserve. Preach the gospel to yourself. Like I said last week, you deserve hell. We all deserve hell. Anything else, that, anything we receive in this life that's better than hell is, is an infinite blessing. But God has given us Christ. And he's given us, he's given us so much, so much, so many bonuses beyond Christ, but, but we have received Christ. So give thanks because you have been given what you do not deserve. Now, I, I'm not saying that, that you should never say something to someone who is, is treating you unfairly. But I wonder, in, in those circumstances, are you, are you trying to win? Are you trying to exact justice or, or even vengeance? Are you trying to, to win in your own strength? Romans 12, 19 to 21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are you overcoming evil with good in your life, in your relationships? This is when it gets really hard. This is when it gets really Christ-like, by God's grace, to love other people who are treating you poorly. So next we see Isaac moving on to Beersheba. Again, the Lord appears to him in a theophany. He appears to Isaac as, at night as he appeared to his father Abraham, as he appeared to, as he appeared to, to uh, Jacob, his son. His father received a new name. Abram became Abraham. Jacob will receive a new name as well. Jacob will become Israel. And the Lord here repeats the promises to Isaac. He doesn't give Isaac a new name, but he repeats the same promises that he'd given to Abraham, and he repeats the same promises that he's going to give to, to Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your, offspr multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. First notice, I am the God of your father, Abraham. This identifies the Lord with the revelation of the eternal God, El Olam, in, at Beersheba, as, as well as in, as, as in chapters 15 and 17. Again, it's for Abraham's sake, because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the unilateral, gracious covenant that God had made with Abraham. The Lord here is, is not initiating something new. Again, he's continuing what is already in place. Isaac can't say that he's earned anything here. It's all grace. This word from the Lord is a, is a timely word, given the, the relational conflict that he's just experienced. But that relational conflict could not overcome the Lord's blessing. As the scene closes, we, we see Isaac once again following in his father's footsteps. But this time, it's for good. This time, it's for good. Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Isaac responds with worship. He's responded to God's promise in his word with worship. God has given you his timely word as well. God has given you his promises in scripture. He's promised to be with you. He's promised to bless you. So worship the Lord. Give thanks to him for his goodness and mercy. Call on his name. And he will hear you in Christ. So it closes with, with Isaac pitching his tent there in Beersheba and his men digging yet another well. The Lord was certainly blessing Isaac with water. The relational conflict is about to come to an end as well. Verses 26 to 35. Isaac with Abimelech in covenant. Now Isaac gets a surprise visitor. 
Abimelech shows up with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, obviously, again, this is not the, the same Phicol as we saw 75 years ago. This is probably a title like Abimelech. We don't know about Ahuzath. But these, these were the top three men in Gerar. This was no insignificant visit. This incident yet again shows the continuity between Abraham and Isaac where the earlier Abimelech and the earlier Phicol had gone to meet with Abraham and Abraham had made a covenant with them. So when they, when they come to Isaac, Isaac appears indignant. He says, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And Abimelech and his leaders respond that they recognize that the Lord has been with Isaac. They recognize the Lord's blessing in his life. This is further evidence that the Lord is, is, blessing, is, is blessing us on Isaac because now we see foreigners recognizing the hand of God in the life of a believer. I wonder, do, do the people around you see the hand of God and your blessing on your life? Not, not necessarily in, in external material ways, but do they recognize the spiritual blessing as, as you show the fruit of the Spirit in the face of trials, in the face of, of hard times? Do they recognize God's hand in your life? Abimelech, we're told, desires a covenant with Isaac, a covenant that Isaac won't harm the Philistines. Again, this is more continuity with, with Abraham, but, but if you remember in Genesis 20, Abraham had taken the initiative to establish the covenant, and here it's Abimelech who takes the initiative. But here's where Abimelech now drifts from the truth. He says, just as we have not touched you and have done not you, to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, well, that's not really true, is it? Being chased off those wells isn't really doing good. It's not really being sent away in peace. Moreover, the Philistines had, had broken the covenant with Abraham. The, the covenant that, that, that the, the earlier Abimelech had made with Abraham 75 years ago was an everlasting covenant that should never have been broken. But again, Isaac doesn't argue. He prepares a feast, they exchanged oaths, and Abimelech and his men went away and departed in peace. And then yet again, his men find water, another blessing from the Lord. And so he called this place Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is called Beersheba and to this day. And it's still called Beersheba to this day. This is, again, yet more continuity with Abraham. But as the chapter closes, it cuts back to Esau, Isaac's son, as he marries two Hittite women, Judith and Basimath. These marriages are, are a stark contrast between with, with the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau is marrying pagan Canaanites. He's marrying outside of the family. He's marrying without his parents' blessing. Esau is disrespecting his, disregarding his family and he's despising his religious heritage. And we're told that, that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I'm sure that, that this grief struck closer to Isaac's heart than anything the Philistines could throw at him. Parent, a parent grieving over the sin of a child. It's, it's a great heartbreak in your life. But this then sets the scene for the events of chapter 27, which we're going to see next week, Lord willing. So we've seen in this chapter that the Lord's blessing of Abraham has been passed on to Isaac, that the line of blessing will continue, and it will continue all the way to the end all the way to the end of time. The events that are here, the famine, Isaac's lie, his lack of faith, the conflict, none of it can overcome God's blessing in the, in the, li in the life of his people. Nothing can hinder though the God's blessing from those who are trusting Christ. God had graciously bestowed upon Abraham and his successors the promise, promised blessings by whom all the nations would ultimately experience blessing. And if you are here as a Christian, you are experiencing those same blessings. You are experiencing the blessings of the Lord that were, were passed on from, from Abraham to Isaac and all through the generations that culminate in Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Savior. You have experienced this blessing in the same way that Abraham and Isaac experienced it, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Friends, know 
difficulty, no obstacle, no trial can overcome God's blessing for you in Jesus Christ. We earlier read from, from Lamentations. And I think, I think Lamentation is, is something, it's, it's part of worship that's often missing in the church. We, we, can, we can come and, and pretend like everything's okay, but, but Lamentation is real. This is, this is a heart that's bared before the Lord. Who is Lamentations 3 ultimately about? Yes, this is the experience, this is the experience of the writer, but it, it is ultimately the experience, of, the experience of Christ, who faced every obstacle, who faced, who faced a numerous opposition and hurdles, the hatred of the people, of the religious leaders. He even experienced the wrath of his heavenly Father, not because of his, his sins, but because of our sins. As he bore our sins in the body, in his body on the tree. Jesus Christ has overcome. He has won the victory for you. So as Jesus said to the disciples in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you, the sinless Son of God, who lived a sinless life, who perfectly loved your Heavenly Father, who loved your neighbor as yourself, Lord, that you would bear the punishment that we deserved, that you would die in our place, but Lord, also that you rose on the third day that you have ascended to the Father and that you are interceding for us even at this very moment. So we pray as your blood-bought bride. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see who you are in the midst of our circumstances, that, Lord, we would not focus on, focus on, on external things or even in our own, our own sin, but we'd focus on you, that our lives would be reinterpreted and, and reordered in light of the gospel, that we would grow in obedience, that we would grow in grace, and Lord, that you would be exalted, that you would get the glory that you deserve through our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.